0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to CBA's At The Bar, a podcast where young and youngish lawyers have unscripted conversations with our guests about legal news events, topics, stories, and whatever else strikes our fancy. I'm your host, John Amarillo of Tafts, and Hollister, and co-hosting the pod with me today is Stephanie Valinsky, Deputy Director of the Illinois Supreme Court Commission on Professionalism. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Jonathan. Stephanie, should I call you Stephanie, Deputy Director, Deputy (laughs) Director?
1: Stephanie is great.
0: Okay, easy enough. (laughs) Stephanie, we're joined today by two guests. First, Dr. Diane, Anna Uchiyama, executive director of the Illinois Lawyers Assistance Program, aka LAP. Dr. Uchiyama has a master's and doctorate in clinical psychology as well as a JD and has extensive experience On the topic that we are going to discuss here today, I'm going to leave it hanging for the purposes of suspense for a minute. Okay. And introducing our second guest, Jonathan Beitner, who's an attorney, certified coach and frequent speaker on topics relating to attorney development and well-being. Jonathan is also chair of the CBA's Well-Being and Mindfulness Committee, all of which probably ends the surprise and gives the topic of today's conversation away to our audience, lawyer well-being, wellness, all things well, Diana, Jonathan, Stephanie, welcome.
2: Thank Thank you. you.
0: Thanks for being here. So let's start with a softball. Diana, Jonathan, let's say hypothetically that you were talking to a lawyer who doesn't meditate, doesn't do yoga, um, doesn't drink kombucha, doesn't really know how to spell kombucha, doesn't have a drug problem, uh, likes his wine, likes his scotch, but not to excess, sometimes suspects that younger lawyers just talk about wellness as a way of skipping out of work early. Uh, What would you tell this totally hypothetical person about why discussing lawyer wellness is important?
2: I think that, you know, as a practicing attorney, I was really ambivalent and also in denial about the problems that the legal community was facing. My colleagues, um, were struggling, and I didn't even recognize that there were significant issues, and if I did, I thought it was normal. So I think that we can kind of embrace the normalcy of some of our maladaptive behavior. So I think engaging in a conversation about how is that attorney doing, what are they doing to cope with the The negative side effects of practicing law, I mean, it is an adversarial competitive process. There is a wear and tear to it. A lot of attorneys develop compassion fatigue and burnout and have mental health and substance use problems. So I think engaging in a conversation about where are you on the spectrum of well-being.
3: Yeah, I think that was a great answer, and I completely echo everything that uh, was just said. I, I would just add that the extent that there's some hesitance about engaging in these topics because... You, know, you think to yourself, "Oh, I'm I'm not someone who you know drinks kombucha, or you know is a health fitness freak, or something like that." Um, you know, appreciating that uh, well being is a really a holistic idea, and there's many dimensions to it, and sort of figuring out what does it mean for you to be thriving and and being at your best. Because uh, the jury's sort of out, and we now know uh, that there's there's such a connection between sort of. These health and wellness topics and things like productivity engagement reducing burnout uh compassion fatigue things like that so it's really about being the best attorney you can be and and finding ways to make sure that the negative aspects that wear and tear that we were just talking about doesn't bleed over into your personal relationships and your your outside of work life and things like that
0: okay so let's start by defining the problem just so we can get our heads around it what kind of when we were talking about alcohol abuse problems maladaptive behavior drug abuse problems What kind of numbers are we looking at there? Do you guys know?
2: We're talking about law uh, lawyers Uh, lawyers in in general. Yeah. Yeah. So the statistics, the ABA uh, conducted a a study uh, with Hazleton that was uh, released in 2016. And the numbers of attorney who are struggling with depression is 28%, uh, which is a pretty significant number. I always say when I'm speaking to an audience, my assumption is uh, out of three people, one of them is struggling with something Uh, 20 point uh, 21% 21% have problematic um, alcohol use, um, 19% struggle with anxiety issues, and 23% indicate that they're under chronic stress. And coupled together, I always call a mental health and substance use issue the dynamic duo that can lead to high levels of suicidality. And depending on the study that we look at, we, we see that lawyers have a, a higher rate of suicide. The last statistics I looked at were higher than doctors and dentists who notoriously had the highest professional suicide rate among uh, professional groups.
3: And just to add to that, so uh, the stats that were just said were from that ABA Hazelden Betty Ford study. Um, and they also had a, another set of statistics in that study, which were uh, they asked respondents to just self-report whether they're struggling with issues. Uh, so you so know those numbers are probably under-reporting. No, those don't rely on self-reporting. Oh, okay. Those numbers ask people to describe their current habits and beliefs and, and attitudes, and they use kind of diagnostic screening tools that therapists and psychologists use. Yep. But they also asked a separate set of questions that just asked self-reporting questions. So something like, have you ever struggled with depression at any point in your career? And obviously, that's going to be a much, you know, less clinical number, sure. right? But those numbers were, I think, even more kind of staggering. And, and astronomical. So the, right. Yeah, astronomical. Uh, so the, the numbers around those topics were 45% of attorneys surveyed, and there were almost 13,000 respondents in this survey, uh, said they suffered with depression at some point in their career. Staggering 60% said they struggled with anxiety, and over 10%, 112 said that they had had, had suicidal thoughts at some point in their career. So, you know— whether or not you have a clinical diagnosis obviously is important for treatment and things like that. But as a practical matter, right, if you feel like you're depressed and, it's, and you're struggling to get out of bed because of it, you know, that's going to have a, the same kind of practical impact on your on your job and your work. And so, you know, to me, those were sort of also very staggering numbers uh, to say nothing of a 28 percent depression rate at the time they took the survey.
2: And what we know is the suicide rate amongst the general population keeps increasing and for lawyers and judges is constantly escalating. So we have to really look at what is going on and why aren't we doing something about it because this isn't something that's new in the field of law. There's been previous studies from the 80s and 90s which suggested high levels of depression and problematic substance use. Um, And those numbers haven't changed. What's increasing, and it's clearly due to technology issues, is the rate of anxiety and chronic stress because we can't turn our brains off. We can't be unavailable. We're always available. So those are leading to escalating rates related to anxiety and uh, chronic stress as well.
0: That reminds me of uh, an article that uh, Judge Tom Mulroy from the Circuit Court, former CBA president, recently wrote where he discussed how law is a profession, not a job. And because of that, we take it with us everywhere we go, including all of our clients' troubles and anxieties and stresses. Is there something about the practice of law in particular? You mentioned that all of these terrible statistics that you throughout are higher than even <laughs> dentists who are kind of notoriously known for being some of the most depressed human beings on the planet. Right, that's always, that, that understands people's attention. <laughs> right. when
3: it's worse than dentistry. Right. It's, like, it's worse than like oh someone God. who spends his or her day in someone else's
0: mouth. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> right? Um, is it, so the, this kind of raises like a chicken and the egg problem, yeah. right? Is it is it something about the law that attracts these kinds of personalities or is there something about the law that leads people to this
3: kind of behavior? Do we know the answer to that? The answer is yes, okay. right? No, because uh, it, it's both, right? I do think that there, there's there's some studies. So right around the same time that that ABA Hazelden Betty Ford study came out, there was a survey, a similar survey of law students. And it showed similarly high rates with respect to depression and binge drinking and things like that. But what we found was, uh, what the researchers found was that people entered law school with about average rates of mental health substance use disorder uh, issues Often as, more
2: resilient than, than, yeah, the than the general population. Yes, but even by age. the
3: end of the first year of law school, those numbers start to dramatically in, increase, particularly with respect to anxiety and depression
2: and, and alcohol use and
3: alcohol use. Mm-hmm. And so there's so that would suggest that there's something about what's going on in law school or how we're attract, you know, who is being attracted and things like that. And you know, there's a myriad different reasons why the profession is struggling at these high rates. Some of them were alluded to, right? 24-7 client demands, high stakes, unpredictable schedules, things like that. Um, But one of the things, I do a whole program that's just titled the profession's pessimism problem. And to me, one of the most, uh, one of the the explanations that really resonates with me is this idea that, you know, we're all kind of wired for pessimism through this principle called an implicit negative bias. But the way we Train lawyers, right? Huge swaths of that really exacerbates that implicit negative bias. Um, If you think about how law students are trained, a lot of it is, you know, here's a fact pattern tell us everything that's wrong with it. Well, break that
0: down for our audience, including me. Sure, sure. Doesn't know what an implicit negative bias is. Yeah, okay, sorry,
3: excuse me. So implicit negative bias, and and feel free to correct me if uh, you've got something to add on this because it's it's kind of a big topic. She's a double doctor. Yeah, exactly, right, exactly.
2: He's using impressive words. so (laughs) so.
3: Um, So an implicit negative bias just means that, and everybody has it, not just lawyers. It just means that we internalize and give greater weight to negative events over positive events. Right, and this was an evolutionary trait that helped us stay alive as cavemen and stuff like that. But basically, what it does is it, we're wired to kind of survey our surroundings at all times for what might be threatening, where danger might come okay. from. Right, we're very societal, so you know how might people be perceiving us negatively because we know that that's important for our survival. And that was all good when we were cavemen, and, and the, the dangers we faced were really existential threats. Right, it's the saber toothed tiger coming to maul us. It's you know not getting stranded and lost from our cave type of thing. We don't have that kind of stressors anymore, right? Now the stressors and the threats we face are, are much more benign, thankfully, right? It's not saber tooth tiger coming to maul us. It's like a looming deadline, right? But physiologically, our body still responds to stress the same way, and so we still have this implicit negative bias where we give greater weight, and there's, there's research that says that the ratio is something like three to one, so it takes three positive events to offset one negative event some say it's five to one some say it's seven to one it's not what the actual number is is not terribly important but this idea that an exponential level we give greater weight to negative events over positive events is what's important
0: and so you're saying that something about the way we train law students exacerbates that instinctual lack of perspective
3: exactly right and so you know as lawyers we're constantly dealing in kind of worst case scenarios and what's your litigation exposure and, and you, you mentioned it before right the practice of law is all about taking on other people's problems right and so to be an effective advocate it is important to kind of have those kind of worst case scenarios in mind what's our litigation exposure how might this deal fall apart down the road so that we can advise our clients right the problem is when that type of modality of thinking and that mindset kind of permeates our whole lives right and we exacerbate it um, by the way we train lawyers right this idea of issue spotters things like that. And I do think that there's also this kind of self-selection problem, right? Lawyers are notoriously cerebral and analytical and very smart, and we want to know the answer, right? So when we're, when we have gaps in our information, right, we always have unknowables and imperfect information. We usually fill in those gaps with kind of that worst case scenario reading. Mm -hmm. And because we're so analytical and because for the most part, we're very smart, right? the The stories we tell ourselves hold together, right? And it's easy to kind of you know, we, we, we fall prey to these common thinking errors. So we do things like catastrophize things. We, we kind of engage in all or nothing thinking or we overly personalize things. And all of these things are contributors to stress, anxiety, uh, and ultimately can lead to depression.
2: And, you know, I, I mean, I work directly with lawyers, judges, and law students. So I think I can simplify it in that people who go to graduate school, to professional schools, are built differently than people who aspire to other careers. So first of all, we generally are type A, yeah. uh, we're competitive. And then uh, law school, like Jonathan talked about, teaches us to think about all the what-ifs, which is anxiety-inducing and provoking, right? But it's it's teaching you this analytical framework for looking at the world. But if you're already predisposed to some anxiety issues, then it can increase some of those kind of feelings of anxiety. And what we know now is the World Health Organization Conducted a study last year that was released across eight different countries, including the United States, and the age of onset of mental health disorders is now between the ages of 14 and 15. One in three college students now has a chronic mental health disorder. These are the people who feed into the professional schools. When I got my master's and doctorate, it was all about how do you work with people who are troubled and keep yourself intact? I don't ever recall a class in my law school that taught me that the adversarial nature the incivility that takes place within the profession would cause me to develop any symptoms that might um encourage me to develop some maladaptive coping mechanisms. The other thing is we live in a secret world, meaning that if I am struggling, for me to share that with other people makes me feel weak and vulnerable. And the profession as a whole is not good at addressing vulnerabilities, right? Because if we're supposed to be these very tough-minded adversarial people being vulnerable doesn't really kind of create, uh, it doesn't create room for that to kind of be negotiated. And it may inhibit our personal growth, our professional growth. So I think that, um, you know, the practice of law is something that we have to recognize creates uh, and increases mental health and substance use issues. And that we have to become more aware so that we can monitor ourselves and recognize even though that we view ourselves as the problem solvers, that we too can have problems and can seek help. Do
0: you think everything that we've been discussing um, has contributed to a growing phenomenon that a lot of practicing lawyers have observed in the law, um, including friend of the pod, uh, Alexis Douglas, um, who recently wrote me and asked whether... Uh, we thought that increasing levels of incivility in the law uh, contribute to the problem, all the problems that we're discussing today. Um, It seems like on a year-by-year basis, more and more lawyers are attacking each other personally and questioning each other's motives, which I imagine would A, as you just said, Diana, make the problem worse, but also B, act as some kind of like negative feedback cycle, encouraging you to engage in those behaviors all the more. I don't know if there's any data on this, but just um, allegorically, do you think there's any any truth to that?
2: Oh, absolutely. You know, I think that the world is increasingly becoming more incivil. As, as we sit here today, you know, we live in a divisive culture, right, um, that has become more polarized uh, as time goes on. And so... Uh, oftentimes what you see is permission to engage in in incivil behavior and acts because of the culture that you live in, right? So I don't think incivility is only a legal problem. However, it it is happening at dramatic rates in the legal profession. So that monitoring, you know, we're supposed to monitor ourselves individually and collectively as a group. I think that's broken down to some extent. I Uh, Meet with lawyers all the time who tell me they can't do it anymore, that the adversarial nature of the profession has just worn them out and um, they don't know how to recreate themselves because law is all they know. So we have to do a lot of work to kind of determine is this just compassion fatigue or is this burnout or is this a combination of both and can you still remain in the law despite the incivility that you will be exposed to on a continual basis so it's almost like determining whether you can stay in a relationship when you know your partner is unkind to you on a regular basis and i think we are starting to see that some people are saying i can't do it anymore that that they've done it for so long uh, and that's not an unusual scenario i see that Every day at at LAP, people come in talking about that.
1: We obviously talk a lot about incivility and professionalism at the Commission on Professionalism. How do you two see well-being as, what's the connection you guys see um, to well-being, to professionalism, and how can a better well-being assist in that greater civility?
3: Well, I just, you know, what came to mind as we were having this discussion is, is, you know, one of the big things in the attorney well-being movement that we try to promote and get people to like internalize as the first step to like making progress on these issues is that you know lawyers are just people right and these are all just people issues and the the humanizing right the 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 rise of incivility is kind of the opposite uh and leads to a lot of kind of the dehumanization of the profession um and and you know approaching people as adversaries and you know in like larger firm contexts, looking at associates as you know billable units and stuff like that and 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 i was just that's wrong (laughs) <laughs> that's wrong. Yeah, that's, that's, that's yeah. it's I mean, not helpful. Is n- what it is. Is you know, there yeah. are no rights and wrongs. Right. <laughs> okay. But it's but, you know, it's funny. I was at a, a conference last week and this is somebody brought this up sort of the the dehumanizing uh, aspect of the profession. And, and in particular, when he heard someone referring to like a, a more junior so as, as a billing unit, right, how kind of troubling that was. And so I think. When it comes to civility, like just a greater appreciation that, you know, we're all people, we all have issues that we're dealing with. And I do think that because of the rise in the adversarial nature of of the profession, it's, you know, I feel like I can't ask for an extension or, you know, deadlines being major drivers of, of anxiety and, and pressure in, in, the, in our jobs, you know, not feeling like you can have like a meaningful sidebar with opposing counsel to like deal with a personal issue that maybe has come up or things like that. So I, I think... Kind of appreciating that these numbers are what they are, and more likely than not, people you're working across from might have issues, and, and being having some compassion towards that idea, I think, uh, is a way that we can both lower the rates of incivility and, and help bolster people's well being.
0: Okay, I think that's probably a perfect lead into our second segment. So we'll take a break right there. This episode of At The Bar is brought to you by CourtFiling.net, your solution for filing in over 100 courts in the state of Illinois. CourtFiling.net provides a better e-filing experience, focusing on speed and ease of use in the e-filing process while quickly addressing the pains that can arise from a newly mandated process. CourtFiling.net is affordable and offers 24-7 phone, email, and chat support. Visit us at courtfiling.net to take advantage to receive 30 days, unlimited free electronic filings and see why it's the best solution for your firm. Let courtfiling.net worry about your e-filing so you can get back to taking care of your clients. And we're back. Okay, so guys, we've defined the problem. Let's talk about uh, solutions. A, A lawyer who's suffering from depression or anxiety a lawyer who thinks he or she has an alcohol or drug abuse problem or has been told he or she has an alcohol or drug abuse problem, which is probably more likely. What uh, what resources are out there? What can they do?
2: Well, as the executive director yeah. of LAP, I mean, I would promote LAP very heavily just because we are mostly attorneys slash clinicians. And so we understand what the problems facing people in the legal community are. We work with Judges, lawyers, and law students, and um, because of our experience and kind of our boots-on-the-ground concept of working directly with the people who are suffering, we're very aware of resources within the community, resources at LAP. So at LAP, we can do evaluations and assessments. We do old-fashioned interventions as well when people are not open to getting the help they need. We have uh, counseling uh, with the therapists on staff, including myself. And we have peer support mentors in the community that we train to kind of buddy up with people. We're also creating a mentoring program with older attorneys who are retiring with younger um, attorneys because mentoring within the legal community is at an all-time low. Very few people have mentors uh, that they can uh, turn to for assistance and help. And we've all been through that poser syndrome when we first start the practice of law where we're supposed to feel competent and be competent, but we aren't but we're afraid to let anyone know that we're vulnerable. And that creates all sorts of uh, uh, stressors and anxiety for people. So um, we are an all-encompassing kind of agency where we're able to kind of, if we feel that the needs are greater than what we can provide, we have resources within the community that we have uh, professional relationships with. We have um, treatment assistance funds for people who have uh, no ability to pay. Many solo practitioners don't have insurance. We have connections where we can try to find funds for people and providers who will see people at reduced rates. So we really uh, we never let anyone um, walk away without services. We will always find someone to help someone in, in need. Thanks, Diana. I will just add from
1: the Commission on Professionalism standpoint um, with the mentoring program. So we actually in 2011 started a lawyer-to-lawyer mentoring program in Illinois, and it is a year-long program. Um, Each mentee is one to five years out of law school. Each mentor is one or five plus years out of law school, and it's focused on professional responsibility issues. And those issues are um, in addition to ethics, professionalism, civility. It's also focused on Diversity and inclusion, and then mental health and substance abuse. So that is a great program to um, get yourself paired with that's a mentor, a mentee. So that is throughout the state. So you can go to twocivility.org to find that out. But that's a great point about the mentorship. Thank you. Um, no, sure. As far as with just a follow up with LAP, how does someone get in contact with LAP, and when they do? What is the process they have to go through uh, with that? Well,
2: we really streamline the process. Um, You know, we have uh, a Get Help uh, email. We have a Get Help phone number that people can contact. Our cell phone numbers for Tony and myself are available on our website Um, So you can always get in contact with someone. Obviously, if it's a crisis, if it's a um, life or death situation, we ask that you go to the hospital or contact the police. But for all other occasions, LAP is available. We get back to people within a 24 to 48 hour window and um, we see people within the uh, first week of contact all in an effort to streamline the process because we know how hard it is for people to reach out to help. Mm. Uh, we've increased our CLEs throughout the state um, in an effort to kind of put lap out there for people to recognize and to let them know that we have options available for them. We opened an office in Geneva um, last year that I staff on Mondays and um, all in an effort to capture people outside in Kane, DuPage, DeKalb, Rockford area, because those people don't access services. Our main office is at 20 South Clark. We have an office in Park Ridge as well to capture McHenry and Lake. And then we also have satellite offices throughout the state of Illinois. We're creating LAP locals throughout the state. We're doing judicial training so judges become the face of LAP as well in communities where we aren't as readily available in person. We run groups every week at LAP, downtown, women's, men's, parenting, and young lawyers groups, and we run two um, AA meetings a week for uh, judges, lawyers, and law students only. So we try to create diversity in some of the um, opportunities for people to engage. So sometimes people aren't ready to go see an individual counselor, but are willing to engage in group or start going to an AA meeting where they feel a comfort level.
0: What is that process look like let's let's say I'm I come to lap and I have a drinking depression anxiety issue I don't I'm one of the rare happy lawyers but let's say that's that. the that's case that's fantastic um, <laughs> what can I expect not like you know a play by play but what's done there?
2: So we put you in contact with one of our clinicians we divvy it up depending on the need depending on the specialty or what they've reached out to us for. So I do wanna say that a lot of people eventually reach out to LAP because we um, are confidential with immunity under Supreme Court Rule 1.6 meaning that we are the Las Vegas of the law. What comes to LAP stays at LAP unless someone wants us to release that information. But that being said- It's a said, really
0: interesting comparison. You know, yeah, yeah, really substance is, abuse, so but all For right. those of you
2: who are gamblers out there. <laughs> no, I like but, the
0: irony. Go with it.
2: Yeah. So um, the one thing I do have to say is that there's a tremendous amount of stigma in the field of law still related to people accessing services. So even though we are confidential with immunity, people still fear coming to LAP. And so- you know, my office out in Geneva is in a place where there are no lawyers. Um, downtown I've I many of us meet clients at locations of their choice because of the stigma of them being afraid of coming in and being recognized by their peers. And so we really accommodate people to the best of our ability. We meet them where they're at. Obviously, ideally we can't meet everyone outside of the lap office, but So we do a thorough evaluation to determine what the needs are. Um, If the mental health issues are pretty prominent and unrelenting, we may indicate that they need a psychiatric evaluation. We ask their insurance. We try to find and partner people up with um, services that are appropriate. We do see a lot of trauma victims where, uh, especially the female population or the LGBTQ community, where they are disclosing trauma for the first time. So we have trauma providers because that's a long-term process that we refer people out to, but we do see people for brief therapy. Uh, We try to engage them in the group process uh, when they feel comfortable. And if there's substance use issues, we try to get them into the AA and A meetings. So we really are an all-inclusive kind of um, agency that tries to uh, look at the person individually and then determine what the needs are and figure out the best treatment plan moving forward. And Jonathan, I
1: know there's a lot of a lot that bar associations are doing on this issue. Uh, can you talk about um, what the CBA has been up to?
3: Yeah. So the CBA has a uh, well. There was a mindfulness committee and a well wellness committee, and that's now been combined into the attorney well-being and mindfulness committee. Uh, just kind of streamline the process. And we put on programming. Uh, and we partner with institutions like the Commission and LAP. Um, you know, in May is mental health month. And so we, last year, we put on a, a lot of programming, lots of CLE opportunities. Um, Do you serve kombucha? We we have not served kombucha, but uh, it's, it's, we'll, we'll have you to take to. it I under consideration. Yeah, it it it's 2020. A hot, hot topic. Yeah, right. <laughs> I Get still don't really program. know what it is, but no, me neither. I'm, yeah. I'm really not a, not a kombucha fan. But, uh, um yeah, but we, we're available. and um you know we're we're relatively new committees,, uh, so we are looking for ways to engage and 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 partner with other existing committees to try to spread the word and and uh, disseminate information to the rest of the the Chicago legal community.
1: Excellent. Uh, and then is are you mostly doing education or is it uh, are you doing any regulatory things at this point on the issue?
3: Uh, there's no regulatory initiatives at the moment. Um, I have been involved with the lawyers Assistance Program, uh, and in that capacity, we've worked with the commission with the relatively new uh, mental health and substance use uh, disorder CLE requirement. So on the regulatory front, I feel like that was a, a big step forward. And, and uh, for those that aren't familiar with that requirement, uh, you know, every reporting period, all attorneys need to, to have at least one hour of Continuing legal education around uh, these topics, and that was a big push and a huge win as far as destigmatizing programming around this issue—not just admitting people have an issue with it, but just putting on educational opportunities for these topics—and um, has really raised awareness. And and you know, moves like that, coupled with the the recent research, uh, like the ABA Hazelden study that we were talking about before, has really. Uh, it's an exciting time to be working in this space because there's really been sort of an explosion of interest and and initiatives and programs uh, at the city, the state, national level, kind of across the board. So uh, I do think really meaningful steps have been made to to reduce that stigma, because people are now realizing, right? I, I always say the ABA study showed sort of unsurprisingly shocking data, and what I mean by that is, you know, we've always known that the practice of law is a difficult one to operate in. Uh, but it's, it's one thing to kind of talk in platitudes about it that it's just kind of high stress and high demand, and it's another thing to see a 28% depression rate and, you know, over 10% of the professions had suicidal thoughts, right? Those are the kind of data points that lawyers in particular, kind of very evidence-based, very cerebral, like we were talking about before, um, those are the data points that are really moving the needle, and you're seeing – law firms and legal employers across the country kind of investing a lot more resources bar associations and so uh you know it's not just the lawyers assistance programs fighting this fight because they've been doing it for for decades now and you know really in the last half a dozen years or so people are are really sort of waking up to these issues
1: and our ad on the uh Requirement for mental health and substance abuse CLE. The commission will have by the end of 2019 a free online uh, program on resiliency as well. Um, So check that out. um, What are
0: we talking about when we say resiliency?
1: So that. Is a great question. I was going to, I would like, Diana, can you uh, talk to that uh, a little bit as far as, I will just say studies are showing that uh, lawyers are terrible at resiliency, but um, can you talk about why that might be and what it is?
2: What's interesting if you take a poll, and I often ask people when I do CLEs, and I do a lot of them, I say, uh, how many of you think lawyers are a resilient bunch? And most of the people in the audience raise their hand, and I'm like, eh, wrong. Um, Actually, we're really thin-skinned. We take things personally. We get really defensive at criticism. And those are all things that lead to whether a person's resilient or not. The resiliency studies actually come out of the military. That's where the basis of resiliency is. And it really took place after the Vietnam War when they looked at people and why some people uh, thrived after the war and why some people didn't. And what they looked at were factors that contributed to resiliency or a lack of resiliency, and those are personal attributes. So people who come from a strong family support system, who believe in self-efficacy, meaning that you have control uh, over your own destiny, who have positive coping skills in place, tend to do better even under extreme duress and stress than those who lack kind of supportive mechanisms to kind of try to keep them together. They looked at education as a buffer, but clearly lawyers are some of the most educated people on the planet. So what is going on in the field of law that makes lawyers less than resilient despite uh, coming usually from higher socioeconomic classes, not all the time, but also from intellectual levels that sometimes buffer uh, stress and anxiety issues. Um, so uh, what we we have determined is that incivility, adversarial nature, the law school process. When you look at what Jonathan talked about is when people come into law school, the people who apply are technically more resilient and healthier than the average population of individuals their age. And then by the end of the first year, it's kind of like they've been decimated and their mental health and substance use issues have increased dramatically. The rate of suicidal thinking has increased in a dramatic fashion. So, what is it that's happened over the course of that year? Is it the pressures? Um, so, it's
0: law professors' fault. This is all <laughs> law professors.
2: No, it, I think we have to kind of take a look at, you know, the um, kind of teaching people about pessimism. If you go in yeah. and you're already pessimistic, like Jonathan talked about, and then you're teaching them to be more pessimistic, then overall, you your level of negativity and pessimism will increase, right? But we also have to recognize that. People who are generally more compassionate and empathic people um, are at a higher risk of compassion fatigue and burnout, which leads to less resiliency. But we don't know that as a profession. So, you know, I consider empathy one of my strongest virtues, but it also leaves me vulnerable to kind of being decimated by the legal process, by the kind of um, ambiguous endings that happen in cases, by the win or lose kind of philosophy, and then hanging my hat and my identity on whether um, this win-at-all-costs kind of mentality is really working for me personally. So resiliency is about the ability to kind of pick yourself up despite uh, some of the negative consequences or things that happen in your world, and to perceive the world in a positive way despite what's happened and, and we're seeing that lawyers don't do a really good job of and that it's,
3: it's so important because and there's there's been such a push for it of late because we know right resilience at its core is like you know your ability to bounce back when you experience adversity and, and we know we're going to experience adversity like that's a fact of life and that's not unique to the legal profession but it is particularly true in the legal profession uh, and it's funny that you bring up this topic because I'm literally leaving this recording to give a presentation on titled Four Ways to to Bolster and Build Resiliency. Um, and just very kind of one-off, the sort of the things and the techniques uh, that you as an individual can do to bolster your own uh, rates of resiliency, so to speak, are kind of at a high level, foster more optimism and positivity in your life, right, because that'll help you bounce back from when you hit that low, uh, practice mindfulness, uh, engage in cognitive reframing, which is simply the Um, ability to look at and analyze one situation in multiple different ways. Um, Which good lawyers should be doing anyway. Which all good lawyers should be doing, right? You you would think that this would be... Right, so there are some things about the Mm -hmm. the legal mind, so to speak, that contribute to these these, uh, poor mental health and substance use rates, but there are a lot of things about lawyers that were particularly well-suited to combat the same things, right? And so something like engaging in cognitive reframing is a perfect example of that, because the lawyer mind should be able to, you know, argue both sides of the coin, so to speak.
0: What was the fourth one?
3: And the fourth one is is practice self-compassion, right? Because one of the other issues in the legal profession is there's high rates of perfectionism, right? And maladaptive perfectionism. And and part of the problem is those perfectionist tendencies helped us when we were law students and as we were going through our academic career to be high achievers and, and to push ourselves to do well. Um, but it can become maladaptive, right, when we kind of get uh, overly concerned and have unrealistic expectations and you know we're we're thrown into a profession that sort of, you know, excellence is the standard. Um and you just be excellent all the time. Right, exactly. It's it's as simple as that. Right. And so it's my
0: personal motto. Right,
3: right. And all of these things kind of all those topics we just I was just mentioning, right? Fostering optimism, positivity, practicing mindfulness, engaging, cognitive reframing and and self-compassion, they all kind of feed in with one another. And so really the kind of the overarching one is is how do you kind of Foster more positivity and optimism in your life because that's really going to be the best buffer against kind of the, the detrimental effects uh, to your overall well-being when you experience low points, when you have setbacks, because we know those are going to happen.
2: And and, and from a psychological perspective, type A personalities who are perfectionists tend to be rigid, right? And so the more rigid we become, and you see that sometimes with the aging process, is that you get set in your ways, you want to control things that are not within your control. And so that lack of internal flexibility um, kind of sets the tone for the possibility of developing maladaptive coping skills. So if I can't force you into a position, if I can't be flexible about the way I view the world and the problems in my world, if I lack insight into my own capacity for understanding what is happening and why things are becoming less than optimal then it sets up kind of the perfect storm to develop mental health or maladaptive coping skills, including substance use. And lawyers, you know, although alcohol is their favorite drug of choice, they use any and all substances. There isn't one that I haven't seen that we're seeing, you know, prescription drug use and opioid use and um, marijuana use that's very uh, problematic and cocaine is on the uptick again. Uh, I have uh, clients who have uh, crack addictions, crystal meth. So we're not immune as a population of individuals (sighs) to not experiencing the same problems that the general population is facing. But I think we create this concept that because of what we do, we are slightly immune to it. And so I think that insight that comes into recognizing our problems is sometimes uh, fairly low. So yeah.
0: that's really interesting. If if I'm hearing you both correctly, a lot of the very traits that help lawyers succeed and become lawyers eventually start eating away at their mental it's health. It's a
2: blessing and a curse, right? Right, and then, yes. but
0: some of those skills can yeah. then be yeah. turned around to help them dig out of that hole.
2: They make us excel, right? right? They make us, fear of failure is a huge driver for perfectionists and competitive A-types, right? So something's always nipping at our heels, but... Uh, when is enough enough, right? What is our definition of success? Is it always about achievement? And that goes to that self-compassion and loving kindness, that mindfulness thing is like we need to, it's not just about the law. It's like where are we filling up our buckets? Because if it's just based on whether we win a motion or did well at a deposition or argued good case law or won a trial, we're really setting ourselves up for failure because that's not what defines successful people. Money, money titles. That doesn't create happiness. And so I think, you know, it's like the dog chasing its tail kind of phenomena that we engage in the same kind of behaviors, hoping to kind of achieve that level of happiness and satisfaction and not being able to get there.
3: Well, it's interesting. Well, So first of all, I totally agree with everything that was just said. But just to, to speak to your point about, well, how does kind of, let's take the way lawyers are trained as sort of, you know, we talked about how that contributes to a little bit of the problem. Uh, but it can also be the solution, right? So um, often when I'm speaking or or helping people through, uh, whether it's coaching or mentoring or whatever, uh, various kind of what are referred to as thinking errors, right? So overly personalizing things, catastrophizing things, having this perfectionism, unrealistic expectations and the unreal ideal. Um, You know, because of that implicit negative bias and that inherent pessimism that we were talking about, our first reaction to a situation may not be objectively accurate, right? And so we'll, we'll take a situation, right? A lot of junior attorneys, uh, particularly in the law firm setting, right? Uh, they have n- little confidence, right? They're told the standard is excellence, but at the same time, they're told you don't know anything, right? Law school hasn't really prepared you for the practice of law. It's a very common refrain. Uh, and so- Which you're, is true. Yeah, which is true, right? Yeah. It's to a certain extent, right? And so people stress out about that, even though it's perfectly normal, there's nothing wrong with them, blah, 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 right? And so they think to themselves, oh, I, I, you know, I got some negative feedback, let's say. And it's like, oh my God, I'm going to be fired. Right. People. It's amazing how many first year associates jumped. I'm going to be fired when, you know, the the economics of the firm structure render that almost an impossibility. Right. But we get that way. Right. Because of this negativity, this pessimism. Right. And so, okay, how do you avoid these kind of thinking errors, these, these kind of cognitive traps? You use something called Socratic ideation, where you kind of challenge your own thinking. Right. And so you ask yourself and this is a lot of what coaching is. Right. It's like, oh, how true is that thought? Right, where does that belief come from? Uh, you know, where is the objective kind of? You think you're going to be fired? Why is that? Right. Well, it's just because I have all this insecurity. Right. And so lawyers are particularly well suited to engage in that kind of exercise. Right. right. Socratic ideation, Socratic method. Right. It's, it's right questioning there in your the, own assumptions. Exactly. Right. And so that that our 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 kind of hyper analytical mind and cerebral nature makes us well suited to kind of push back on what might be an inaccurate thought. Right. Or a thinking error. And so. The key is just being aware of it, right, and, and getting a little bit of education about what the issues are because once you know about it, right, and, and you have, like, can articulate the problem, it's so much easier to spot it, so much easier to avoid it going mm-hmm. forward, right? And so I, I totally agree that it's it's this weird kind of chicken and egg and circular thing, but uh, as much as legal training and kind of the, the attributes that the legal profession self-selects for hurts us in some ways, it also are the same tools we can use To kind of work through and avoid you know kind of these issues at the onset before they kind of manifest into more clinical you know depression anxiety substance disorder use disorders so random and probably oddly
0: specific question (laughs) um but when i'm discussing these issues like with my friends and i also saw an article recently that was written by brian cuban friend of the pod former guest one of the things that comes up is what seems like the skyrocketing use of adderall in law school And how that drug in particular and other ADHD drugs that are either over prescribed or obtained without prescription um, seems to be making all of these negative traits come out all the more in law students, producing like, yeah, you know, using this in a non scientific and pedestrian way, but almost (laughs) like borderline psychotic behavior because they use it so much. Is there. Any validity to that perception because it is widespread?
2: I think we have to be cautious of accusing one prescription medication of causing the problems because cocaine is rampant among college students and law school students and among professionals, legal professionals as well. It's being imported into this country at record numbers, more than when I was fighting the drug wars in the early 2000s. So I think we have to be really cautious. Prescription drug use is definitely a problem. Anytime a a medication is used for wrongful purposes, right? Uh, then we have to kind of look at that as a substance, potential substance use problem. But I, you know, I think clearly we have to also look at, you know, marijuana as as a tool um, that we have to uh, really look at closely because the THC concentrations are at such high levels. The smokables go up to 28% and the edibles up to 80% THC. But
0: but those drugs, let me just push back a little bit. I I know you're the expert, but those drugs, they're used more recreationally, whereas ADHD drugs are used to enhance performance. And, you know, the the perception is I'll get some kind of edge if
3: I pop this Adderall before the final. And I think more than that, I will,
0: if I don't, if I don't
3: pop, the pill I'm I'll be behind. I'm, I'm at a disadvantage right if, right? if totally. I'm not There's if I'm not cheating pressure then I'm a sucker right totally because you know how can I study 10 hours straight all that kind of stuff so i uh, sorry I didn't mean to interrupt yeah you, no I
2: I, sure. I I I it's not that I'm disagreeing with you but I think we need to be cautious because what we see is much more complicated than that sure That people are also using, you know, with the legalization, anytime something becomes legal, people think of it as harmless. But what I say is we see high levels of addiction issues with marijuana, and we're seeing a lot of psychotic and delusional disorders in people who aren't predisposed to those kinds of disorders in the past.
0: Because of the drug use?
2: Because of the high THC content. So Mm. I just saw someone on, uh, for an assessment... Um, last week who has a delusional disorder that's forming from high rates of using dabs in a vape pen uh, because the concentration levels are so high. So I would like to just say that it's not just Adderall. Yes, we, you know, even college professors who are writing papers, people look at prescription drugs as the kind of inroad to being more successful. It's just, we really have to look at the overall picture of what people are doing. Cocaine can be said in the same way. It's not just recreational. It creates an edge and it creates that same stimulant effect. And, you know, so I think we need to be cautious because it's not one thing. It's not just Adderall. And frankly, the use of Adderall as, as an abusive thing is something we see less than other. Kind of substance use uh, at lab.
3: and just on the substance use, you know, back to that ABA Hazelden study. You know, when I was going through it, it was very interesting because the numbers related to cocaine use, marijuana, all those things were really low. And it wasn't until you know years later, after the study, maybe two years later, that I, I read in uh, a New York Times article that noted that. 75% of the respondents from that ABA study opted out of the, the drug okay. use section. Okay, so, so they, you know, because it's it right. self-survey yeah. and whatever. So 75% opted out, and it's not because none of them were taking drugs, right? It's yeah. because and, all of them and, were taking right, drugs. Right, 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 yeah. right. So, you know, I think that highlights, you know, what we were just talking about, how prevalent not just ADHD and Adderall and things like that, but um, sort of the whole canopy of, of substances. And I think, you know, I, I'm not a, cl- a mental health, Clinician, so you know I can't speak to it, but to me, it doesn't matter what your substance of choice is, whether it's alcohol or cocaine or weed or uh, Adderall. You know, it, it's about thinking why are you taking it, right? And is it to self-medicate? Is it to get this performance edge? And if that is the reason, why do you feel like you need it? And and the ways in which that that impacts your overall well-being, whether that's, you know, you're taking Adderall or you're on high on cocaine and you're not getting any sleep or, uh, you know, you're, you're engaging in other substances and you're blowing deadlines or you're, you know, neglecting familial relationships or whatever it is, right? We know that well-being is a very, you know, it's important to take a holistic approach to it and a kind of a multi-dimensional approach uh, to your overall well-being. And so to me, the, the better, you know, an, an important aspect of the drug use question is sort of why are people using it and and what are the underlying issues that are kind of driving the usage? Okay.
0: Law professors.
2: Law. Well, it, 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 let's I just want to say this related to law students, that LAP um, has put a tremendous amount of effort into being available in every single law school in the state of Illinois. Yes. So there's nine law schools in the state of Illinois. We have office hours in every single law school once a month in an effort to kind of manage some of the problematic behaviors before they manifest themselves in the law. And what we see is that 40% of the people, the clients that we see at LAP, are coming out of the law schools now. And that number is increasing because we started, you know, with the law school session starting in September, our numbers have exceeded the levels of last year at a dramatic rate. Well, I was just
3: going to jump in and say, you know, on a more hopeful note, you know, I think that what that shows more than anything is sort of the push that younger attorneys are making for prioritizing these issues, destigmatizing these issues, and really saying, like, you know, we we know that the practice of law again, unsurprisingly, shocking data. We know the practice of law is going to be difficult. People are excited to be lawyers, and you know, there's not going to, I don't think there's going to be any real shortage of lawyers anytime super soon. But I do think that there's a growing clamor, particularly from law students, particularly from more junior attorneys, that we want these issues prioritized, um, and that's why you're seeing kind of this explosion uh, of interest and programming. And so the fact that there's such a high percentage of LAPS clientele is from law students. I don't see that as you know, law school being so much harder, but more, you know, kind of more optimistically that people are waking up to this and and being more open about it and wanting to seek help because uh, LAP really is the, the first stop that I would recommend any lawyer who's dealing with these issues to kind of check out.
0: And with those sobering and optimistic <laughs> thoughts, we'll go to our second break. <laughs> Seeking to expand your legal network, sharpen your skills, and obtain free CLE? Unless you plan on being a professional failure, that's probably a good idea. Join the Chicago Bar Association today and connect with lawyers and judges who lead Chicago's legal community. The CBA will help you expand your personal and professional networks while providing practical programs and resources that meet your specific practice needs. New lawyer membership starts at just $82 a year. Learn more at www.chicagobar.org. Need a lawyer? Steve? I do. You look like you need a lawyer. The Chicago Bar Association Lawyer Referral Service has been making referrals for over 70 years to attorneys who have been thoroughly screened for experience in over 40 different areas of the law. Call 312-554-2001 or visit us online at www.chicagobar.org backslash LRS. And we're back, so like every episode, we're going to close out today with a game we call Stranger Than Legal Fiction. The rules are really simple. I've done my research and found one strange uh, law that is on the book somewhere in the world, but probably shouldn't be. I've made another one up, and I'm going to poll all of you to see if you can distinguish strange legal fact from fiction. You ready to play? Absolutely. Yes. Diana, why don't we start with you? Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so number one option number one i should say in the venetian suburb of mestre italy it is illegal to sweep streets without a permit or other form of prior government authorization don't guess yet that's option number one option number two in delaware using whistles is prohibited and subject to a fine of six months in jail or a thousand dollars
3: using a whistle Using That's a whistle—that doesn't like matter how you use metal it. Metal, okay. little <laughs> yeah. annoying
0: things.
2: Was your guess. Yeah, I no, no. Was I, your I, guess. I, I, so, no.
0: Diana, why don't we start with you? Which one's real? Which one's fake?
2: I'm going to go. The real one is the whistle, because of whistleblower. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's on everybody's mind. I <laughs> I that was Because <laughs> of the
0: persecution of whistleblowers and yeah, the right, I, I am say
2: just saying because everyone's talking about whistleblowing, and you brought. I'll say them
0: for you. It's okay. Yeah. I think we're on the same page.
3: Jonathan what I- do you I'm going to take the Venetian anti-sweeping rule. Why? You know, canals, I could see it being a real issue. Getting too much stuff stuff That's clogged cool. up in there. It's a real real nuisance.
1: Okay. That makes sense, Stephanie. I'm going to go with the Venetian as well. Diana. I like <laughs> I like yeah, it's I the li- curse of I've going been there. First. I could see why yeah, yeah, it's I, necessary. Yeah,
2: it's, yeah. The channels are very dirty.
0: So, um Diana, don't let this Get to you and your competitive streak as a lawyer, but I'm unfortunately, wrong. you were incorrect. <laughs>
2: but it was a good tie-in to the yeah, whole it was right. a great yeah, tie-in. Yeah, so, so it made for a much more interesting kind of topic.
0: <laughs> it was a great tie-in, actually. It, it comes. I found this from uh, my mom, who sent me an article. Hi, mom. Um, <laughs> of a migrant who uh, in Italy, who didn't want to panhandle and couldn't find work, so he began sh- uh, sweeping the streets in Venice to help his new community and just asking residents if they wanted to pay him for his service. And he was fined nearly $400 <laughs> wow. by the that local police. It does seem unfair. Uh, thankfully, that uh, fine was withdrawn by the police after um, quite a few protests by people who are urging, <laughs> urging local government <laughs> officials just to be decent human beings.
3: Let's well, back to the civility. Right? Yeah, um, there you go.
0: And that's our show for today. I want to thank our guests, Dr. Diana Uchiyama and Jonathan Beitner for this hopefully healthy and thankfully kombucha-free conversation. I also want to thank my co-host, Stephanie Volinsky, and everyone here at the CBA who makes this machine run, including our executive producer, Jen Byrne, Ricardo Islas on sound, and everyone at the Legal Talk Network family. Remember, you can follow us and send us your comments, questions, episode ideas, or just troll us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at CBA at the bar, all one word. Please also rate us and leave us your feedback on Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcast. It helps us get the word out. Until next time, for everyone here at the CBA, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you soon at the bar.